chapter 5 open, uh, all you friends. Well, we've already been singing of those extraordinary realities of uh, the story of Christmas, the reality of Jesus, heaven exploding in praise as the army of angels mark the arrival of the King, making known the wonder of God Himself breaking into human history, taking on flesh, uniting Himself in a permanent and a powerful way with the humanity that He made and that He loves and that He comes to redeem, calling a weary world to receive good news of great joy that the Saviour King has come to bring that perfect love that we crave and the eternal life that we need. And what's remarkable is that when you zoom in on what that remarkable, extraordinary, exalted and glorious scene looks like, God becoming flesh, stepping in the world as Saviour and King, perfect love, eternal life, you zoom in to look at what that scene in reality looks like, it's very different, isn't it? A teenage mother in a backwater town, meagre circumstances, the announcement made not to the movers and shakers, the political powers, the ruling class, but to nobody, shepherds in a field on the outskirts of town, picture of power that we get is a paranoid emperor who's fragile, who's arrogant, who's self-absorbed. It's the baby Jesus in these humble circumstances in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, who's the incarnation of beauty and goodness of free, undeserved and forgiving love, who's reconciling with kindness the Sovereign Lord with His humanity. He's bringing wisdom and authority as He speaks the very words of God. He's breaking down walls of social exclusion and religious hypocrisy. He's bringing freedom through forgiveness. He's bringing hope through healing. He's calling every man and woman and child to come to Him denying themselves and turning from sin and trusting in Him for the life that they need, the hope that they long for and the peace that passes understanding. And yet this glorious Jesus, born in poverty, also dies in shame as He takes the sin that is ours and God's just judgment against our sin upon His sinless and righteous shoulders, removing the sting of death, opening the way to eternal and reconciled life with our good and loving Creator. He is the perfection of all that we were made for, He is the satisfaction of all that we long for. And yet there's just this kind of mix all through the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection that flips our world and our our, our thinking and our paradigms on their heads. That God's power is made perfect through weakness. That glory comes through suffering. And if, you, if we were to be those people who respond to Jesus' call to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow Him as Saviour and King, the logic of the story of 
of Christmas, the logic of the story of Jesus, the logic of his life, death and resurrection, means that for us too, we need to know that God's power in our lives is made perfect through weakness. That our glory in being united to Jesus forever will come through suffering, even as we follow a crucified Messiah. And so these last few months, we've been living in the book of 1 Peter together with those expectations from the Apostle to first century Christians and to 21st century Christians alike, that our our clear expectation for the Christian life is one that sees power made perfect in weakness and glory that comes through suffering. And so our expectation clearly needs to be as we've heard week by week, that as we follow a crucified Messiah, we too will suffer like he did. As we unite our lives to his life, even as we long for the perfection of his glory, that is the the guaranteed and perfect future that Jesus has in store for those who would trust him. That glory is our, our promise, our permanent, our our sure possession, it secures our identity and our salvation now, but it resides in the future. And so our expectation now, as Peter says in chapter 1, is trials and suffering of many kinds. And as he says again at the end, as we come to the end of chapter 5, suffering of many kinds just for a little while while we wait for the glory that is to be revealed in the last days and the challenging thing is that when the shape of the christian life is the shape of jesus life suffering and then glory power through weakness means that we're going to walk through many circumstances in life that will cause us to question the reality of that our identity and the the permanence of that guaranteed inheritance to walk through very many circumstances trials and suffering that make you question whether God is for you whether you do belong to Jesus whether you will make it to the end whether he is indeed for you And so Peter has written this letter, as he says in verse 12, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. This is the true reality of God's kindness towards you in Jesus. And so as you walk through those circumstances, stand fast in it. Stand firm in it. As you cling to Jesus, all that he is and all that he's done for you. As you think about the shape of Jesus' life and ministry, the character of who he is, the mission and example that he gives. It's crazy that we would come to the Christian life with any other expectation than that of suffering. 
that we think Jesus is somehow going to be the vending machine that provides for all the desires of our hearts, that Jesus is going to pad our lives with comfort and prosperity that looks nothing like the life that he lived and the death that he died and the promise of his kingdom. And so as you belong to Jesus, as you cling to him through suffering, as his power is made perfect in your life through weakness, as his glory is attached to your life forever through suffering, Peter's concerned, Jesus is concerned, that through those circumstances you cling to him and stand firm in his grace. And so, to these Christians under pressure, Peter appeals first then to the leaders of the church, the elders of the flock, appealing to them on the basis of his sharing in, the, in, in Jesus' glory as a fellow shepherd of God's flock. That leaders within the church need to feed the sheep by God's word and spirit, not feed on the sheep. That church leaders are not to use the church for their own self-promotion or their own self-advantage, but in the pattern of the Lord Jesus are to be willing servants, examples to the flock, who provide for and protect and feed the sheep by God's word and spirit while we wait together for our great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus, to lead us into green pastures and beside quiet waters forever. Seeking position and power and prestige have nothing to do with the Christian life or with Christian leadership or with the Lord Jesus at all. In the same way, he says to the younger people, submit yourselves to your elders, those who are meant to be caring for you and providing for you, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because, here's a key verse, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. The New Testament loves that proverb because it encapsulates so much of our response to God's grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, be the humble ones in order to receive God's grace. It's the same as what Jesus said when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, that blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognise their own sin and selfishness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The posture of the Christian life is the opposite of self-absorbed, self-assured and self-reliant pride. Humility, as C.S. Lewis famously said, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And so where the proud might come to Jesus with all kinds of assumptions and entitlement of what they think they deserve or what they think they've earned or what they think they've achieved, 
God says instead of that self-absorbed self-reliance, you need to come to him with humility, the posture of bowed knees and empty hands to receive his kindness. As you think about this picture of humility versus pride, one of the great stories I think that Jesus told was of two men who went up to the temple to pray. One, the self-assured, self-reliant, self-absorbed Pharisee who thanked God that he wasn't like other sinners, who trusted in his own religious observance, who came to God with a list of all his achievements and all his entitlements. The other one, the publican, stood back at a distance, beat his chest, looked at the floor, pled nothing but need and threw himself simply at God's mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. the Apostle Peter considers the circumstances of the Christian life and our need to stand firm in God's grace while we wait for Jesus to return. Our posture needs to be one not of entitlement before Jesus but of humble need before Jesus. This is a picture of my family and I walking around a Saturn V rocket one of the rockets that took the Apollo 11 mission to the moon, right? And you can't help but be humbled as you walk under and around and along this enormous rocket with extraordinary power. I think there's another picture of the engines. Look at the size of that. When it stands up, it needs what they have at um, the Kennedy Space Center, the largest doors in the world. Right? And you're humbled by the power and the size of something like that that can take you to the moon. Recognizing your size and your mega powers in comparison. A proud person would stand, you know, at the Kennedy Space Center, walk up to the launch pad and say, I'm wearing Air Jordans, I think I can get to the moon on my own. That's the kind of foolishness that comes from human pride, that comes before God claiming self-reliance, claiming entitlement, claiming achievement, failing to recognise your sinfulness and your size in comparison to God's holiness and His power. In comparison to that pride, Peter says in verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, recognising His power, but also his provision 
that as you cast yourself on his, on his mercy and come before him in humility, recognizing it's his mighty hand that will lift you up in due course. That he has the power, but he also has the provision. And so as you keep walking through the circumstances of suffering and trials of various kinds, Peter says, keep reminding yourself in humility of your great need to rely upon God and His mighty hand, to keep living before His presence, to keep looking at Him and looking at you and seeing your smallness and sinfulness and His power and His holiness. And so calling for Christians to humble themselves before God and to clothe themselves in humility is seeking to avoid the great trap of pride. That in self-reliance and self-assuredness says, I don't need God. I can do this all by myself. But the second great danger that Peter points us to is the opposite one, not the one of thinking that you're too good for God's grace or you don't need God's grace but thinking in fear and anxiety that you're beyond God's grace and then so the second thing that he calls Christians to do in seeking to stand firm in God's grace is verse 7 to cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you It's a wonderful reassurance, isn't it, that Peter's expectation is that Christians will have anxiety. That that's not unexpected. That that's totally fitting given the circumstances of life in this broken and divided world. That there will be things you worry about. There will be anxieties that breed fear. That's normal. And the reason I think that Peter puts his finger on this, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, is because while pride might make you think that you don't need God's mighty hand of saving grace, that you're reliant on yourself, anxiety can produce within you a feeling that you're beyond the reach of God's mighty hand and his saving grace. That somehow as you walk through anxiety and fear, you feel isolated, like you've been cut off from God's grace, that you've been cut off from His kindness and His provision and His power. No, 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 Peter says. When you feel anxiety, when you're experiencing fear, don't feel that you're beyond God's reach his mighty hand and his saving grace. But he is right there to carry those burdens for you and so cast them upon him, knowing that he cares. Isn't this a wonderful picture? That we can humble ourselves before God, knowing that he is mighty and powerful to save and to lift up to bring into his presence and his glory, to protect and provide for. 
But not only that, that he is close and he is caring. There is a wonderful promise of the gospel that those two things, God's might and his sovereign provision and power, coupled with his care and his close kindness. And so cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. As Peter brings this little letter towards a finish, he reminds us in verse 8 to be alert and of sober mind, to keep thinking clearly and rationally, and to stay alert, recognising the realities of our lives and of the gospel, and recognising that those two things, pride and anxiety, are great tools not only of self-destruction when it comes to our own faith, but of spiritual attack from the devil. Satan loves nothing more than for people to think that they are too good for God or too bad for God. Whatever tool he can use, whatever he can pry open to make you feel like you do not need God's grace or you don't deserve it or you are beyond it, he will use. And so with these truths, humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Those two realities will help you resist the devil, standing firm in the faith that you will not shipwreck your trust in Jesus along the way because of the reality of your circumstances. But you will continue to know your need for God's grace and your access to God's grace. His provision as well as his protection. And the great truth that he reminds us in verse 9 is that we don't walk through these things alone and despite what Satan wants you to believe and what you might have told yourself, you are not the only one experiencing those doubts or carrying those fears or struggling with that pride. The whole family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings, the same persecution, the same pressure, the same trials. So don't let those things isolate you from the family of believers. You ever watch one of those documentaries where, you know, the lions in Africa kind of find this huge herd of something, gazelles, and what's the lion's strategy? Can't take on a whole herd. What's a plural noun of gazelles? A gallop of gazelles. No, it has to isolate. It has to break one away from the pack and so that they are weak and vulnerable. Don't let the devil, the lion isolate you from the family of believers thinking that you are unique and going through what you're going through as if no one else has ever gone through it. But continue to stay connected to the family of God's people in order that you might be encouraged and spurred on to stand firm in God's grace, to 
Keep humbling yourself under his mighty hand and casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And then this final great promise that the God of all grace, the undeserved kindness and favour of our sovereign Lord, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, remarkable, after you have suffered a little while, reality, he will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. You don't need the muscle, you don't need the fortitude, you don't need the resources yourself to stand firm in the faith and to take hold of your inheritance kept in heaven. He himself, as you humble yourself under his mighty hand, will provide everything that you need by his word and spirit and in the fellowship of his family to keep you to restore you, to make you strong and firm and steadfast, kept for Jesus and in Jesus and soon with Jesus forever. This is the wonderful promise that we remember, especially at this Christmas season powerful, the almighty, the eternally glorious God, united with our frail flesh, in order that he might take upon himself our anxieties and fears, our suffering and sin, to bear God's judgment and to open for us the gate of glory. And so to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Why don't we keep celebrating that as we stand, as we sing.